I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. Hey, Dennis, uh, we are uh, continuing our journey through the mystery of the Eucharist, a document the bishops put out for the Eucharistic revival. What are we talking about on this episode? Well, particularly how the Eucharist transforms us. We are alive in Christ, living more fully, and then we take that divine life out to the world in the public sphere, the care of the poor, and even the good caretaking of the planet. Yeah. One of the connections I made when reading this section, which I had never done before, is, uh, you know, um, when, when teaching about uh, original justice and original sin, I just draw this little doodle on the board here. We have God up top and you have Adam down here. And then coming off of Adam, you have this relationship with uh, Eve, with his children, with, uh, with nature in the garden, a relationship with himself. And as soon as Adam severs that relationship through disobedience between God and him, all of these other relationships fall apart. So the relationship that he has with Eve, right? This woman who you put here with me, she made me do it, falls apart. Uh, the relationship he has with uh, himself, you know. He's, na- he's naked now and he's aware of it. Yeah. And he's, you know, his body, you know, the good that he wants to do, he doesn't do. And that what he wants to do, you know, we're at bat- we're all internally at battle with ourselves. Um, the, the relationship he has with nature right? It's through the sweat of his brow that he's going to work to bring forth thorns and thistles and things like that. So it's not until, you know, so as soon as this principal relationship has been severed, all of these other relationships are broken. And if he can re, if he can reconnect this relationship with God, and this is what Jesus comes to do, then he can start to get along with his wife, get along with his kids, get along with his neighbor, get along with his world, get along with himself and all these other things. Well, the, 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 the thing that occurred to me this time is, you know, on the top of this diagram, don't just say God put the Eucharist. And so if I can write my relationship, right, because what is the Eucharist, but the saving action of the Pontifex Maximus connecting us back to God, that's what's in the Eucharist. So if I can through the Eucharist, really re- return my relationship to God. Ah, you know, just like you guys are saying here with your neighbor whose dog poops on your lawn and, you know, the lawmaker or, you know, not to pick on lawmakers. I mean, you could be in any line of work that uh, you've got to. It's Plumbers a, are the uh, worst. <laughs> so, you know, but that's where it all starts is, is, is this um, transformation. You can't transform the world until you are transformed by this relationship with God. And once that happens, then you can start to transform the world through society and politics and family life and, and all of the rest. I think, I think I've told you guys about this uh, Camp Foytiwa that I did for a few years out in Colorado. And that was a big part of their, you know, the theology is the reconciliation of God, self, others, and creation. They call them the four harmonies. And so, um, you know, I always thought this, you know, personally, this is not something that they were kind of teaching there. It's kind of what I took away from it, that if uh, you have to start with that reconciliation with God, because if we're made in the image and likeness of God, and we don't know God, then we don't know ourselves. And so, and also, we can't know others unless we know ourselves. So you, you know God, you reconcile with God, you can reconcile with yourself, 
then you know what that means in your relationship to others. And when you know what your relationship means to others, then you can understand societal impact on creation and harmony in that direction. And so I think you, I think you hit the nail on the head. That's exactly how I think about it is kind of like that progressive reconciliation. Progressive I think you can reconciliation. Put, that's good. yeah. Band name, album title. There's a, there's another way to look at that too, which is not to undermine what you said, but that, you know, John Paul said this a lot that we don't know who we are until we know God, right? Because we are beloved son or, you know, whatever our relationship to God, that's a defining feature. You know, you wouldn't know your dads unless you met your kids. Right? So you have to know the other to know your own identity. And so all this stuff that comes through the grace of the Eucharist, um, you know, all this stuff in the world, this is what the Vatican Council was, was saying, laity do this, laity who participate actively and fully in the liturgy and are transformed by grace. What, what were you saying? You don't know your dad unless you know your kids? You don't know you are a dad until you know your kids. Oh, see, so okay. You, I, you I, I didn't, uh, I probably just said it too too fast. But when no, you but become no, a son, when you meet your parents, when you become a husband, when you have a wife, right? So you have to know you, the other to know yourself. But that this is the thing, though. I, I misheard you, and it made me think about even something better, which I think adds to this. I, I don't, until I had kids... I didn't really know, know my parents, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because, because now I am participating in that familial love in which I was never a part of before. I was only the recipient. I was only on one side of that. Now I'm between, you know, I, I'm participating in both of those things at the same time. And so there's this fullness of familial love. Right. And you can appreciate your parents better because you know what it's like to have kids having a bad day, <laughs> stomach problems and bad moods and all of that stuff. So, you know, in, in a way, it gives you a mercy, you know, an understanding for others. You know, th this document makes a, you know, it's very Francis era document in some ways that that to know Christ is to know the poor. Right. And that's very, very clear. I was remembering um, reading something from Dorothy Day a long time ago and she has all this commitment to the poor and she goes down to the communist um, protests that were in DC in the 1930s. And she said they had real claims, you know, people were being unjust to them. They would be, had no safety net and nobody had told them that the church had an answer for them. But the first point was what are their genuine worries and their genuine uh, claims? And she said, if, if uh, social justice were just card parties and uh, potato salad, you know, with uh, a few readings at the end, that that was not it, right? It was actually uh, meeting the poor, transforming uh, yourself to to know them. What is They quote here, Mother Teresa, again, one of your Mother Teresa quotes you mentioned, Chris, mm. to see uh, Jesus in the poor. If we don't see him in the appearance of bread on the altar, we will not see him in the distressing disguise of the poor. But there's a kind of alertness that comes um, with all sacraments. You have to be aware and have to imagine something beyond the, the serious, the, just the minimum of what you see. And so just walk by people and, and see that distressing disguise. Um, Got to be able to see beyond, see beyond that. Jesse, do you remember this interview you did with uh, David Fagerberg for Autoramus? Of course. He, he did this, uh, he wrote a piece called The Many Altars yeah, of the, all the, or yeah. something like that. And he's talking about the altar of the cross, the altar of Jesus' heart, of our heart, the altar of the church, and the altar of heaven. There's your eschatological nod there, Ed Dennis. But he talks mm -hmm. about the altar of the poor, he says, in his David Fagerberg way. He said something like, uh, 
oh, there's an altar I can walk around in and bump into and knock over if I'm not careful. Meaning you can't just be, you know, into the altar on, you know, that's in your church. I mean, there's another altar with, with flesh on it that's uh, walking around and hungry and without, uh, you know, proper housing or things like that. That's uh, as much of an altar of God as is the altar in your church. And so to see one but not the other is to, well, I mean, this is, I know that, this uh, uh isn't there a thing called the consistent life ethic that has you know different mm -hmm. you know uh, uh, meaning that you know the 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 bringing the life of god is in all sorts of different different ways mm -hmm. and uh, part of that is in helping the poor those who you know who are images of god uh, in the world that's not an optional thing it's a sort of a necessary eucharistic transformative element I think for us, that sounds kind of normal. We've been hearing that sort of stuff for a long time, but there were theories, other theories that probably well, in the 18th century, the early 19th century, that if you were poor, it was your fault. You know, you were uh, not favored by God, the sort of prosperity gospel notions and too bad for you, right? So, you know, there's a quote from uh, Gaudi Metzbez here in paragraph uh, 39. Everyone must consider his every neighbor without exception as another self. Wow. That's a that's a bit of a challenge, you know, to me right here in this moment, right? So it's not to imitate the rich man who had no concern for the poor man, Lazarus. But again, how does this happen? You receive the Eucharist liturgy, social justice, as we've talked about many times, are, are connected. If you're not the hundred watt bulb, you can't shine light, you know, on others. And uh, it lists all these other things that are opposed to life itself, murder, genocide, abortion, euthanasia, and so on. None of this can end without the grace that is available primarily in the principal way uh, in the Eucharist. Yeah. Hey, beyond, he moves beyond this though, too. So, you know, there's this transfiguration of oneself. And after you have that, then you can go transfigure the world of culture and politics, and then you can transfigure the world of uh, your neighbor. But then there's he gets into uh, uh, the environment. So um, let's see here. Hear the cry of the earth. Yes. Yes. Between the celebration of the Eucharist and the care for the, uh, the environment. Um, what, do you, what do you think of that? I, I was... I was going to try to do a Dennis setup here, you know, that uh, expect uh, Pope Francis to say something like that. But what he's actually doing, I think, is quoting Pope Benedict right there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that line. Right from Sacramentum Caritatis. Yeah, uh, yeah. Trust the connection. He was such well, a he mentions, Pope. He, well, actually, he was. The Vatican was the first carbon neutral country in the world under Benedict. Um, and it? it says, mentions Benedict the 16th, the connection between the Eucharist and the care for the environment. And here's the creation journeys towards divinization as well hmm. that's a crazy thing i don't know if that's a little bit of uh Teilhard de chardin or what it is uh, but it's certainly scriptural right there's a new heaven and a new earth nature fell when adam and eve fell and nature becomes hostile to us and you know these great advent readings that we have uh from mass about the end will be like the beginning and the bear will lay down with the lamb and all that kind of stuff is yeah the violence that we take for granted in earth and the earth now is just sort of the way nature is will be um will be ended and this is the new heaven and the new earth the heavenly jerusalem's all from the book of revelation uh chapter 21 now i imagine there are people who might get a little nervous oh ecological nut jobs are out there crazy so we have to respond the other way but you can kind of imagine if a person were at peace and they owned land you know would they just rape the land and 
and take all the things out and move on and leave it to, you know, to be a wasteland. No, a person in love with God, with his neighbor, with himself, would try to imagine what it'd be like to be in the Garden of Eden, to have good stewardship of, of things and not to leave uh, destruction in his wake. And so uh, there's the Eucharist relation in relation even to that. This is not that great of a story, but I've never forgotten it. So my very first teaching job was uh, in a Catholic school teaching seventh graders. And I was a graduate student uh, in Dallas, University mm. of Dallas. Where I studied I've never philosophy. heard this story. No, it's like I said, it's not that great of a story. We were, uh, we were deep into this uh, graduate class on St. Thomas and about the immortality of the human soul and how animal souls are not uh, immortal. So, you know, my kind of my misguided conclusion was is that when your dog Fido dies, I mean, he's out of existence forever and ever. And, it was, <laughs> and I kind of brought some of this over into my seventh grade class. And there was a student there who had a sick dog, you know, like imagine the cone of shame around it. Did you make this kid cry, Chris? Yes. <laughs> ah. I got called into the principal's office for that. <laughs> But the principal said to me, you know, he was great, great principal. He says, no, you know, the, so I was going to say your dog's not going to be there in heaven with you is basically what I was saying. That's when, when You heartless, I, mean I teacher. You. I know. But he reminded me that, you know, there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. And we don't know exactly what that's going to, going to look like. But, you know, this world that we inhabit now and all the natural and created things beyond human souls. Uh, are part of God's uh, divine plan, you know, this uh, instaurare omnio and Christo is this uh, natural things are to be there too. So again, you know, I've never forgotten that lesson. And I was thinking of it again uh, today when I was reading this. Was that because they had a just punishment of you having to wear a cone around your neck? And <laughs> yeah, that, that, yeah, that's that, what that, I had to do. <laughs> <laughs> or the cone of shame. So yeah, anyway. the whole Tom, Thomas thing that we'll be there with the minerals, but no animals. I don't know. It's crazy. <laughs> crazy sounding to me. Yeah. So they don't have immortal souls. But anyhow, we'll leave that to the Thomas yeah. to work it out. But I, I guess, you know, if, if as we kind of come to the end of this, uh, I don't know if you have more to say about this section, but right. So th this is about how to respond to the great gift. And this the way this document is talking about it is our response is transfiguration. Get transfigured yourself. So you can transfer, uh, transfigure your own little corner of the world and transfigure the, you know, the, your neighbor, help him to be transformed, help uh, all creation to be transformed and to usher in this new heaven and this uh, new earth that's, you know, there in, in germ form uh, in, uh, in your heart. That's what the Eucharist does is plants that seed of transfiguration, but and you, know, you got to work with it. Power of that is love. This is the end of this section right there. Only love is capable of trans radically transforming relationships. And that's it. Real presence, what is it? Love of God. What is love? Willing the good of the other. So God wills our good. And then he gives us the capacity to will the good of the other. And that's what if, the, the real presence yeah. and the grace of the Eucharist is all about. If you witness love on the cross and you eat that love and you let it transform you, then you become conduits of that same uh, divine love to the world. So That's what we should do on St. Valentine's Day. Forget the candies and the roses. Eucharist, heart-shaped Eucharist. What do you think, Chris? Ooh. That'll be our liturgy question. Can we have heart-shaped Eucharist? <laughs> no, be a short I'm answer. just kidding. Hey, hey, Jesse, do we have a liturgy question? Oh. If you see the Eucharistic miracles, they are heart-shaped because they turn into heart tissue. That cardiac say, tissue, I know. It's I'm amazing. just saying. I'm just saying. Pretty cool stuff. Pretty cool. Uh, Dennis, you were saying something about something or other? What was it? It was, was it about a liturgy something. Was it, uh, what was it? A uh... uh, liturgy question. Yes. Oh, yes. A liturgy question. We still do those? Come on, bring it. Bring it, Kunigunda. <laughs> 
Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? In my case, sir, the question is totally without meaning. Okay, so uh, we have a question this week from Jacob, plus a little bonus comment that I'm going to read at the end. Uh, he said, uh, my name's Jacob, I'm from New Zealand, I'm an altar server at my parish, and I've noticed sometimes other servers ring the bells a few extra times. I know there's the ones during the epiclesis and the elevation after the consecration. In our parish, we do three short rings. But other servers would add an extra ring when the priest kneels after the consecration and another when the priest consumes the precious blood. My question is, where do those extra rings come from and are they needed? Uh, and then he says, what do they mean? Uh, go ahead, Dennis. Bells, Chris. Well, there's certainly uh, a requirement to ring bells on what we call the extraordinary form now, right? The, the pre post Vatican II revised. The liturgy rites. in place prior to the reforms of 1970, I think is the official title. Now. That is the way to put it, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> isn't it the Misa Antiquiar? Oh, no? Usus Antiquiar, right? Usus Antiquiar. Oh, no, that's the, out. Yeah, you, you, you just who knows what anything's called anymore. <laughs> but I'm looking at an old hand missile that average person would in the pew uh, would read. And, you know, after the consecration, there's three rings. After the consecration of the wine, there's three more rings. What else uh, you got there, Chris? Some other bells anywhere? Oh, I, I don't have my uh, preconciliar hand missile, but I mean, I guess what I do have is so bells may be rung at the two elevation in the, in the, what do we call the, the the current missile, the conciliar missile at the elevations and if appropriate uh, at the, I guess it'd be a, at the epiclesis. Um, so those are the three occasions where the bells might be rung in the current missile. So what Dennis, what you're reading from is where the bells would have been rung or could have, I think it would have been rung in the preconciliar missile. And there's right. a lot more of them. Yeah, they also have it during the Holy Holy between the yeah. surface and the Holy Holy. So I, I think the, the, the answer to this question is some of those preconciliar instances of bell ringing have found their way into the post-conciliar missile. That's where they now, come from. Is that legit? Because bell ringing is still permitted in different places, right? Even though it's not mandatory. Well, it's, it's permitted in three places. Yeah. And I would okay, say if it's, if, it's, if it's outside or beyond those three places, then, then no, it's not, it's not according to the... It's, it's not legit. It's not according to the law. It's not according to the rubrics. Okay. So, yeah, I would say that the, those bells should, I mean, th th this has always been the, you know, the, you know, how should the tradition inform the current books? How should the current books be um, uh, enriched mutually by the preconciliar forms? But it's, it's never been up to the individual priest or minister to make that decision. It's been according to the to the author of the books, who's uh, who's the church. So now I I think it'd be a pretty tough case to make that the servers can just can ring them at any instance in the in the new mass that they would have been rung in the old mass. What do you think? I agree, except for that one thing that John Paul said that he encouraged yeah. the use of all traditional things. For the I don't know where it comes from, but I remember one of our students used to claim it all the time that. Uh, that traditional usage should be brought into the to the curtain missile. I assume that's all out these days, but nonetheless, you're safe if you do what the current rubrics request and don't do what they don't request generally. Yeah, yeah. When is it a bad idea to, to 
Yeah. Yeah. Let's stop right there. Yes. I agree with you, Dennis. All right, Jacob. Now it's time for this little uh, bonus comment. Yeah, what is this bonus? I'm excited for the bonus. Well, do you remember when we used to make these jokes about like, if like you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or you can, you know, tweet Dennis at, you know, D, what was your Twitter handle? D-Mac a D-Mac a D. D-Mac Super Taster. Oh, D-Mac a D, yeah. Yeah, and then we're like, but if you want to contact Chris, don't ever try. Remember we used to make all these jokes? So those were not jokes. Yo, <laughs> so uh, so Jacob says, P.S. I know you've probably finished the whole how to contact Chris competition, but I'm listening to those episodes at the moment and I have two. And his first was go back uh, in time and become best mates with Chris so that when you both grow up, he's on the he's on a podcast. It'd be rude of him to not answer your question. And the other hey, is to move. That's pretty the, good. <laughs> the other is to move next door to him. If a liturgy question comes to you in the middle of the night, you go knock on his door and he replies, go away. My children are in bed. Keep knocking. If he doesn't answer your liturgy question, your French for friendship's sake, he will surely answer because of <laughs> persistence. There oh, you that go. Is good. <laughs> that is very good. We should send that guy a t-shirt. Do we still have our liturgy guys t-shirts? He's a, Where are they? He's, he's in New Zealand. Yeah. That's all right. Yeah, Mail goes there. All right. Well, I'll charge it to your ex Corde account, I think. Okay. Whatever Sounds your, good. Your Thanks, Jacob. Center for Beauty and Culture. So, Jacob, I hope that answers your question. And if you have a question for us, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com, tweet us at liturgyguys, or um, move next door to Chris uh, and, uh, and just knock on his door all the time. So, thank you and God bless. Another episode of Liturgy Guys has mercifully come to an end. Our hosts are Chris, Get Out of My Dreams and Into My Carsons, Dennis, Big McNamara, and Jesse, Y-O-Y-O Weiler. Our producers are Michael, Don't Be So Coy, and Nathan, First Round Draft Pickman. Our epiclesis inspector is Isabel Ringing. Our liturgical bookkeeper is Miss L. Romano. Our official aerobics instructor is Jen Uflecht. Our enforcer of choral discipline is Don B. Flat. Our official rubrics interpreter is Dewey Neal. Our self-gift provider is Kenosis. Our simplicity enforcer is Fran Siskin. And lastly, our crack team of confessors is Dewey, Shrivam, and Howe. And even though overstoles become understoles when they hear us say it, we are the, the Liturgy, Liturgy Guys. Guys.